Meet me at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center with Senator Doug Jones, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I'd always wanted to visit Huntsville, Alabama. I finally made it down there a couple of weeks ago. The experience was even more thrilling and lightning and humbling than I had hoped for. We will tour the history-making Marshall Space Flight Center next week. But our trip begins this week at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, not far from Marshall. I'd have visited the center regardless, but its good people also loaned me their conference room for the conversation with Alabama's new senator that you'll hear later in today's episode. It's a hard place to miss even when you're still a mile or two away along Interstate 565. It's the life-size Saturn V model standing 36 stories tall that takes your breath away. I was greeted by Pat Ammons, the center's director of communications. We had barely made it through the entrance when... I was just walking into the Space and Rocket Center with some of the staff here, and an astronaut comes the other way, Don Thomas. It's great to be with you today, Matt. <laughs> I hear that you come here from Ohio. I actually live in Baltimore. I grew up in Ohio, but oh. I currently live in Baltimore. But we have uh, there's seven or eight astronauts you know, that come here every summer, and we talk to the students, we talk to teachers and other adults as they pass through the Space and Rocket Center. You could rest on your laurels, four trips on the shuttle, and a lot of other work. Why is this important to you? When an astronaut leaves the astronaut program, they struggle with what do you do next? How, how can you top a career like going in space? So it's always, you struggle with what to do next. For me, I had a passion for education and talking with students. I really, I really enjoyed doing that and I found I had a passion for it. So when I left NASA, I decided I'm gonna get a job in education. I worked at a university for eight years and did some you know, university speaking, but they mainly hired me to do outreach programs, going out to elementary, middle, and high schools. And I would visit 80 schools a year. So I have a passion for that. It's really important for me to help that next generation. I wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was six years old. I got inspired watching Alan Shepard launch into space on May 5th, 1961. I saw that and I said, I wanna do that. I know that power of inspiration. And that's what I hope to do here at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. I hope that I can inspire that next generation of astronauts. I want them sitting out there hearing about my adventures, and I want them to say, I want to do that. I want to be that first person on Mars. And that's the, the thrill I get out of this, is hopefully inspiring that next generation. And what I wait for in my life is a phone call from somebody who says, I just got back from Mars. You came to my school 25 years ago. I heard you talk, and you inspired me to do that. If I ever get a call like that, I'm going to drop the mic and say, okay, game over. That's it for me. That wouldn't be bad, would it? That's a good uh, way to end it, yeah. Yeah. Would you believe that a gentleman I was just talking to a few minutes ago, he and I were comparing our notes because we're almost the same age, watching Alan Shepard as little kids and how that inspired us and how we'd still like to go where you've been. It was uh, Doug Jones, senator from Alabama. Okay, yeah, this is something you talk to many people in our generation and we all wanted to be ast astronauts since we were little. It's a really powerful, inspirational program. Young students today have that same passion that I had 60 years ago, no different. And I travel around the world. We have students from, I don't know, 50 countries, 60 countries visit the Space and Rocket Center every, every summer here. 
And you see that same passion anywhere you could travel around planet Earth. Space is a fascinating area. It's touching the unknown. It's a magical world where everything floats up there. So it's a natural one of curiosity for young students. And young students are all about discovery and exploration. And that's yeah. what we do in space. So I'm, I'm just thankful to be a part of it. And I'm never surprised when, when people say, yeah, they want to do, do that also or do it too. What's special about this center? I mean, you probably could have gone to a number of places around the country and put in your time. You know, I've been coming here for about 11 years since I left NASA. I come here every summer three, four, five, six times, and I do some other programs with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. This is an amazing place. The first time I came here, I did programs for the students. I thought, wow, that was really great. I really enjoyed it. The more you come back here, the more you get sucked into the mission because you see how it changes students. Mm -hmm. You know, have students that come here, they may be a little shy or unsure of themselves. They leave here after a week with new confidence and new friends. Uh, many of the students will come here and they, they would share with me that their kids at school make fun of them because they want to go to Mars. And I share with them, I said, hey, when I was in high school, I would tell my friends, I want to go to the moon. You know, I want to walk on the moon. I want to be an astronaut. And they would laugh at me. I said, do not be afraid of that. Let them laugh at you. You make it to Mars. That's what this place does. This is one truly of inspiration and uh, exciting young students. They, they will become our next generation of astronauts, scientists, and engineers. And even if they don't work for NASA in the future, they'll be in some field of science or engineering. So this is really, I, I see it as a real magical place. The mission here is so critical for our country, for the state of Alabama, for our entire country and our future, especially in space exploration. And, and it's refreshing for me. I see, see that same enthusiasm, the same twinkle in their eye. I recognize it. I said, I used to have that same twinkle. So I think you still do. I, I might have it. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad we can still uh, get that next generation excited. That's still a powerful program. Thank you, Don, for this and for going from exploration to inspiration. You're very welcome. I'm honored to be here with you today, Matt. Thank you. Pat, I have to thank you because on very short notice, you've uh, enabled me uh, to have, well, you were one of the people who's enabled me to have a great time here in Huntsville, and now we are standing in the center, and this has just been spectacular. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Matt. It's such a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be able to share what we do here at the Rocket Center with people who sometimes may not realize Huntsville, Alabama's contribution to the space to space, space exploration, both in the uh, early days of the Apollo era, all the way through the shuttle, and now with the space launch system being managed right here at Marshall Space Flight Center. So we are always thrilled for the opportunity to share the great work that we're doing here and to let people know that space exploration doesn't take place just at Kennedy Space Center and Johnson Space Center, which is where people go when the cameras come on. All the nuts and bolts work of the space exploration is done here in Huntsville, both in the uh, both with NASA and also the commercial sector. So yeah. it's a thrill to get to share that. So right now we're standing in the Davidson Center for Space Exploration, which is a building that is devoted in large part to the Apollo program and the work that was done here in Huntsville on that, beginning in 1950 when the Von Braun uh, team arrived in Huntsville. This was a very small agricultural 
multicultural community when they arrived, about 14,000 people. And they mm. came here because Redstone Arsenal uh, was being decommissioned. It had been used uh, as, as a chemical base back in World War II. So as it was being decommissioned, uh, it was about the time that the Army Ballistic Missile Command was looking to relocate. And of course, the, the rocket team, the paperclip team that had come over from Germany, had gone originally to Fort Bliss, Texas, and they were looking to relocate them. And uh, it happened that this land, which a great deal of land, situated right on the Tennessee River, was available. So the team moved here. They immediately fell in love with the area because it reminds them with its low green hills and uh, very friendly community of Germany in a lot of ways. And El Paso, Texas definitely did not remind them of Germany. So, <laughs> and, and, and you said paperclip. That was the effort by the U.S. in the closing days of the war and after the war to try and gather as many of these German scientists and engineers as possible, right? Because the Soviets were trying to do the same thing. Absolutely. They were they were looking for them just as hard as we were looking for them. And the Von Braun team made the decision to seek out the American teams. As a matter of fact, as part of our collection, it's not currently on display, is the very bicycle that Magnus Von Braun, who was Von Braun, uh, Warner Von Braun's younger brother, rode down the mountain mm. to intercept the American troops and say, hey, kind of like, hey guys, we're up here. <laughs> so they surrendered to the American and I really think that just truly changed the course of history because if it had gone the other way, if they had, if the Russians had gotten to them, if the Soviets had gotten to them first, it's hard to know what would have happened. We might not have gotten that gigantic rocket that is standing right outside this building, the Saturn V. Okay, so what you're looking outside the building is a replica. Yeah. We're going to run... Close enough. I'm, close I'm cheating enough. a little bit. You're cheating a little bit, but it's the only full-scale replica of a Saturn V you'll see in the whole world. So when you see it vertically, you're driving down the interstate, driving past our property. I, I, many, uh, I'm, I hope we've never caused any car wrecks, but I, I think it stuns people. It's, you know, it's 363 feet tall and to see that on display in all of its vertical glory is really astounding. What you haven't seen, and what we're going to see in just a second, we're going to round the corner and you're going to see the National Historic Landmark Saturn V rocket, which we have on display in the hall right around the corner from us. But we're starting out here in the lobby of the Davidson Center because I want to point to this small plane. This doesn't look like an Apollo <laughs> command module. No, it looks kind of like a bat a wooden bat in some ways. And you know, canvas wings. Canvas wings. This is a small vehicle that was patented in 1908 by a local inventor named William Lafayette Quick. It speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to the early and ongoing inventive nature of our community here. But it also speaks to the extraordinary steps we've taken in such a very short time. And I think it's always important to remember that as you walk around this corner, because as soon as we round this corner here, we're going to see the big Saturn V rocket. The real it's thing. The real thing. This is the dynamic test article that was used here to uh, here in Huntsville in 1965 to test the... Uh, integrity of this of this vehicle and Alex McCool who's one of the engineers who worked on that will tell you a lot more about that but I just want to tell you from a visitor's experience and someone who's not necessarily scientific myself that um, this is just one of the most extraordinary sights you can see when you round this corner and to realize that it was only 61 years from when that vehicle out there was patented and just barely lifted off the ground before it came crashing down to when we landed on the moon. And that is just an incredible story of a human achievement. And I think one of the greatest things that uh, the human mind has ever been able to do. This is stupendous. Stupendous. Now, we're at the business end. We're at the there business are those end. five 
huge F1 engines, the biggest liquid-fueled rocket engines ever made. Ever made. It's still the most powerful. And when they tested this in 1965, this this very vehicle in 1965, when they fired off all five of those engines, it registered as an earthquake as far away as Birmingham. And that's, an, uh, that's 90 miles to the south of us. It broke windows and not cracked foundations, created all kinds of havoc, which is why we don't test giant engines here in Huntsville, Alabama anymore. Town got too big. Now all of that work, of course, is done at Stennis Space Center uh, in uh, Mississippi. Like the Grand Canyon, I don't think I can capture this in a photo no. that would really impart how gigantic it is. Photos nor video do this justice because it's one of the most extraordinary things and and I from all ages I've seen astronauts who've flown in space, I've seen children from all different walks of life walk around that corner and see this in front of them and literally their mouths drop open and they go wow. And what's really extraordinary and I'll let Alex take you on that journey is when you get to the other end of this building you're going to see the Apollo 16 capsule, the command module. And if you stand there and you look inside that tiny little command module and you turn back around and you look down the full length of this rocket, it's truly an astounding experience to just imagine what it was like and the bravery it took to climb inside that capsule and launch to a place we'd never gone before. Just a word about the center itself and your mission here. And uh, the fact that this is, and I'm not here to do a commercial for you, but what the heck, this is a must-see. I think it's a must-see, and I think, you know, for one thing, I think it's important for people to understand some of that early days of space exploration, but also to realize we're not we, we're not done yet. And one of the things that is really important about this, we're, we're a commission of the state of Alabama, and our whole purpose is to educate and inform both about the history, the present, and the future. One of the things we have on display here is uh, a, an exhibit that talks about the work that's currently be done, being done on the International Space Station. But also another very important thing that we do here is we're home to space camp. And a lot of times people use that term in a generic sense, but it's not generic. And in fact, it is a real thing. And we've been doing that since 1930, since 1982 in Huntsville. So this is 36 year long, strong program. We've got a team standing right behind us, actually. And these are families who are part of uh, taking part in a American Girl at Space Camp experience because we partnered with NASA and American Girl to create a character uh, who became the 2018 Girl of the Year. And her story is about the, a young girl who wants to be the first girl on Mars. And the first thing she does and part of that journey is to go to space camp which is all about exploring opportunities and realizing that you can be part of something much bigger than yourself that is part of being a great team player and learning how to work to the best of your abilities. And we've been doing that at Space Camp for a really long time and have a have a very successful program. And we have lots of folks who come from all over the country and all over the world who attend our programs. A lot to see here. I look forward to seeing as much of it as I can. And I guess we should go meet uh, Alex McCool. Absolutely. Let me introduce you to the man who is truly a legendary figure in space exploration and I'm so glad you're going to have an opportunity to meet him. So I'm going to turn you over to Alex McCool. Thank you, Pat. Hello, you're, Alex. You're Matthew. I am. Okay. It's a pleasure and an honor to meet you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That introduction to 94-year-old Alex McCool was no more than a tease. McCool worked with Werner von Braun from the 1950s, eventually leading NASA's development of the rocket engines that would take us to the moon. Stick around for highlights of a personal tour of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center led by Alex. 
But I had another reason for being at the center. It was to sit down with the man who had invited me to finally visit Huntsville when I met him in Washington, D.C. You've probably heard of Senator Doug Jones. The Alabama Democrat was elected to replace Jeff Sessions when Sessions left the Senate to become U.S. Attorney General. I was in D.C. last May for the Humans to Mars Summit and to help celebrate the formation of the Planetary Science Caucus, a gathering of senators and representatives, Democrats and Republicans, united by their belief in the importance of space exploration. When Senator Jones learned I had never been to the Marshall Space Flight Center, he insisted that I make the trip, which was just fine with me. So, three months later, Senator, thank you for this. Welcome to Planetary Radio. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. It's great to be back in this facility. Uh, I love this facility here. It's awesome at the Space and Rocket Center. You know, I only learned at lunch today, where you were the keynote speaker for this big Huntsville Chamber event, uh, that you used to be a board member here. Absolutely. Back uh, during the days of my U.S. Attorney days, I was on the board not only here at the Space and Rocket Center, but I was the board's representative to uh, Space Camp at the time. So I uh, had a incredible experience uh, here with this facility, getting to meet some old astronauts. I mean, it just was uh, it was a, just an incredible time. I heard you say up at the uh, lectern today that you were, an, were or maybe are an astronaut wannabe. Oh, I continue to be. I will be until the day I die. Now, I was six or seven years old when Alan Shepard first went up in the, with, in the original Mercury 7 astronauts that were just heroes of the day. In those days, you know, you would stop at school and you would watch the, the blast-offs and the splash-downs and through the Gemini and Apollo projects. I, you know, it was just the most fascinating time for me. And I'd always, always just dreamed of going into space, just continually fascinated. My grandfather and I especially, he was, we dreamed for that day when uh, we would land on the moon and put a man on the moon. And unfortunately, he passed away like six weeks mm. uh, bef- before uh, the Apollo and, and uh, Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And it's just been a part of my DNA ever since I was little. I happen to know that you and I are almost exactly the same age. <laughs> so I'm not surprised to hear that you were excited about that. I, I, you know, I think everyone that grew up in that era just dreamed of being an astronaut and going to space. It, it was not the science fiction books that we, we had as kids. It was real. Yeah. I mean, we saw it, and we saw it evolve, where Shepard and Grissom would just go up and down, and then all of a sudden, John Glenn went around just three times, just three times. And then by the time you got to the, to the Gemini with two and the, the spacewalks and Apollo, I, I just, you know, look, I can go back and relive it, every one of them. I shouldn't take the time to do this, but do you remember where you were when uh, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon? Oh, absolutely. I was sitting in front of a TV set uh, at home. I had taken off. I was a lifeguard at the pool in 1969, and I left so that I could watch. Uh, I actually kept all the newspapers during the time. I, I, I remember that grainy black and white image of him stepping onto the lunar surface just like it was yesterday. And I literally saved every Birmingham newspaper from the time they lifted Mm. off until the time they splashed down. I still have them in my collection today. I got a couple of those too. And I was shooting off the surface of our black and white TV with my father's Super 8 camera. (laughs) I have that film, so I don't have a way to look at it, but I have that film. I I mentioned to you before we started recording, I spent some time on your website a few days ago and then again last night. So here you've been in this office not for long now, going on nine months. 
you sound like a man with a mission. Well, we've been very active. You know, I take this, I take it very seriously. I mean, it's a, I started out my career when the Senate with Senator Heflin from Alabama, uh, right out of law school. I was, I worked for one year on judiciary. And so this is a place that I always dreamed of coming back to. And to be in his seat uh, is just really surreal for me. And so, you know, we didn't have a lot of time between election on December 12th and getting sworn in on January 3rd. So we spent a lot of effort putting together a great staff, uh, an experienced staff who was able to just dive right in. We're on committees that are important to the people of Alabama. And so it, it gave me some real opportunities to get to, to know other senators, to get involved with them in some bipartisan way on some of these bills, uh, and just and just not shy away. I'm not one to, to you know, just be too, too cautious. I want to be somewhat, but I'm not too cautious. If I see something I like and I think it's good for Alabama and others, I want to move on it. And so that's what we've done. We've we've co-sponsored over 100 bills right now. Mm. Uh, you know, some of those will get into law. Most of them will will not. They're long-term uh, goals. Some of them are we're doing for messaging. But it's an exciting time. Very exciting. The committees that you're on, none of them are strictly speaking space or science related. Right. But you did jump into this new Planetary Science Caucus, which, Absolutely. full disclosure, the Planetary Society is, uh, has helped to form. Right. Seems to me, in some ways at least, to be a kind of unique gathering, particularly for anyone in either the Senate or the House, because it is bicameral right. uh, and bipartisan, uh, a place where people in the kind of job you have come together and, and with so many other issues that it's hard for them sure. to get Sure. I mean, it, it, it touches on so many things um, that when you when you talk about this, this particular caucus, because it, you can go anywhere from space travel uh, and the solar system all the way down to just, you know, STEM education mm. and the importance of teaching kids that, you know, science and technology and everything else. It touches on so many things. But at the end of the day, for me, it was just simply a matter of just being an old astronaut wannabe that I I, I could not let this particular caucus go uh, unnoticed and, un you know, without uh, joining in. So I, I'm just happy to be there. Uh, my boss, the science guy, Bill, yeah. Nye, he says uh, space brings out the best of us in us and brings us together. Have you seen that? I mean, there's so many issues dividing us right now. Oh, look, I said today in that speech that you, and you may have heard this, that, you know, it seems in the history of our country that we seem to come together more in terms of uh, when there's a loss, whether there's a tragedy, whether it's 9-11, whether it's, whether it's the, the space shuttle uh, disasters or something. But the space program and NASA in the 60s and 70s was such a, a, a source of national pride for everyone. It didn't matter who you were, where you were, how old you were, what race you were, what religion you were. This was the thing that really, you know, would draw people together and was something that we uh, were so proud of. And we were doing it so, and nobody else was doing it. The Russians weren't even really close to us. I'd like to capture that again, mm. and that's why I think there's such an interest in going back and in, into space. I think it would be really good for the country to start having these manned space flights a, a, again, because it is something that people can rally around. Everybody is interested in this. Everybody is fascinated by it. There's good evidence of that in what your body, the Senate, has been up to because of the, the funding for NASA, which yeah. uh, 
uh, a lot of us who are, you know, space fans, space geeks, uh, think is a pretty good turn of events. Yeah, no, you know, the, this this year I was I was fortunate enough to be in there. I, I, I tell some of my colleagues they should have done the budget before I got there because I didn't get there till January and it should have been done in the fall. But be that as it may, we had a, a budget bill that appropriated some twenty billion dollars for NASA, which is was about. I think a billion six more than what the president had authorized. It, there is such a, I, I think, an interest, and in, as you said, a bipartisan, bicameral way to really make NASA, uh, a, I say make, continue to have NASA as the leading authority, the leading authority, the leading, whether it's a, a space and space travel or just the science that uh, surrounds the study of our universe. So you're a true believer, but there, there's good politics in this as well for you. I mean, here we are in Huntsville. I spent the morning. Really? I, 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 <laughs> I, you think there's good politics for me being from Alabama here, here in Huntsville? Gosh, I need to make a note to staff about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are close to Marshall Space Flight Center. I had a fantastic morning yeah. there today, not just talking about the space launch system, although I'd like to hear what right. you think about that and the ongoing support for it, but the, the whole breadth of things that they do there. I mean, the science they support yeah. on the ISS, and we talked to a guy with the Fermi mission that is uncovering secrets of the cosmos. Uh, support for NASA obviously is something that is good for your constituents. Sure. And no, it absolutely is. It has provided such an economic, uh, it's such an economic engine for this whole North Alabama area. And, and it has going back to 1960 when they founded the, the Marshall Flight Center here uh, and Werner von Braun and we're sitting at his conference table today I'm still just amazed that at I'm, this table at, at this table that this was Werner von Braun's conference table that so much was done and accomplished just around this table I, I just get goosebumps thinking about it. it it is important it's an economic important I you know I you know, it's a twofer for me. It's great for the economy. It's great for Alabama. And it is good politics. There's no question about that. But this is also a matter of the heart. It really, truly is. I, I could be from anywhere. And, and if I had the same personality and the same growing up, uh, I'd still be right there. I'd still be a member of this caucus. I'd still be pushing as much as I could. When I was headed into Marshall today, and the Redstone Arsenal, I was impressed because th there were so many cars. It was like, oh, yeah. you know, being on a throughway, a uh, tollway up in New right. York or something, uh, lining up at that gate there to, yeah. to show off our badges. Obviously, there are thousands of people uh, who've got good jobs. Here yeah, no, well. it's, it's uh, the, the arsenal itself, Redstone Arsenal, has grown just dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. And it's not just NASA. A lot of people, when they think of Redstone Arsenal, they think of NASA. And you can still see the old test centers out there, the engine test areas that they had for the Saturn V and other things. But it's, it's really more than NASA. It's the Army, uh, you know, it's the Army Missile Command. It is the FBI has got a huge presence mm. out here now. So there are so many things and the contractors that are doing the work with NASA and with the Army and with the FBI are also establishing their facilities on the arsenal. So it has just grown and it is such a, as I said, it's an economic engine for this area. You mentioned the STEM benefits of uh, investments in NASA, and, and I assume by extension in other science. I'm sure you know that uh, the administration uh, in its budget 
tried to do away for a second time, I think, with the education division in NASA. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, you thought that was a bad idea. I think that was a bad idea. There was so many things in the president's budget that I thought was a bad idea, and that was a that was a big part of it. Uh, and I don't think there was an appetite with with Congress for doing something like that. Every member of Congress, every U.S. senator has people that depend on those things. It's important for their districts. It's important for their states. Uh, there were a lot of things about the president's budget that was just, I think, I've said this before, that was just DOA, and that was one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I just don't think Congress would ever let that happen right now. NIH funding, all, all manner of of science funding is important. It, and I think people forget sometimes how many of the things that we take for granted today really had their genesis like in the space program. You know, if you don't promote that research and development, you don't know where you're going to be in five years, 10 years, or whatever. It's not all private research. It's also government-funded research. Do you think NASA is doing a good enough job of, of explaining to people what they bring to uh, American society and American industry? You know, I, that's a that's a tough question, and the answer to that is probably not, but I don't know if it's it, – it, I'm not sure they really have to do that completely. I think it's the things that – you know, with the things that they need to show folks of why it's important to go into space, why it's important to send an unmanned vehicle to Mars and to, and to have that vehicle, that rover, just walk across the rocks and crevices in Mars. They do a really good job, I think, of, of promoting that. And at the, at the right times, they do a very good job of trying to, to tell the, how they are ingrained in the fabric of our society. But it's so ingrained we would have to double and triple their budgets just to do that education component because they, they do mm. so much that I think that they have to pick and choose. And they're doing a pretty good job of that, I think. Uh, and they've got so many things in the works. You know, as the, as the space uh, station is getting older and trying to figure out how to phase that down so that we can do the next the next phase of our, our exploration of the solar system. I am so glad you went in that direction because... There are a variety of opinions now about what should happen with the International Space Station. There are people who want to keep it going long past uh, what was expected to be its lifetime. Right. And, and of course, that's going to cost a great deal. Something of concern to the Planetary Society, I know, because, you know, we figured we got other places to go in the solar system. I mean, where do you find the balance there? I think it's tough. You know, uh, initially, when there were some discussions when I first got to the Senate about selling off the Space station is not a good word, but privatizing some of the space station. Commercializing, Commercializing it. And as an old NASA lover from the 60s and 70s, my initial reaction was, no, hell no, we can't do that. I mean, that's the source of pride that we talked about a minute ago. But then I came up here and I started uh, doing a deep dive on what it cost, where things are, and how it is, while still can be useful, as you said, there are so many other things, and technology has advanced so far that we need to be focusing on that it seemed to me to make a little sense that mm. we start doing some things and letting private businesses, if they want to, to, to use what's up there, let them do that. So I have, I've started to come around a little bit more because the one thing that I want to make sure is that we have the resources and the ability to go forward and not just keep the status quo. And, and there's just so much you can do with a space station that is as old as the International Space Station. And there is so much going on in private industry. I mean, everybody knows the SpaceX's and Blue Origins, but I was surprised to see 
how many hundreds of companies are based yeah. right here because of what's going on Absolutely. here in Huntsville. And and something like, I don't know, 50 or so of the Fortune 500 companies right. based here. That's amazing. Obviously, again, very good for this region. It's, it's the economic engine that, that drives this place. And, and and every one of those companies are not just engaged in what's what's happening now. They're engaged in what's happening tomorrow and the next day and the, and the next year. And they're looking ahead. And that's why this, this facility at Redstone Arsenal, the Marshall Space Flight Center, is so important. It is a place where all of those folks can come in one strategic location. They collaborate, even though some of them compete against each other in a lot of different fields. They come here and they collaborate because it's not just it's science and it's also national security. Uh, it's, there is so much that is that goes on here. It's just extraordinary. Your colleague on the other side of the aisle, uh, Ted Cruz of Texas, I've heard him say twice now, uh, make no mistake, we are going to Mars. In other words, humans right. on Mars. Uh, do you agree? Do you think that's the right I think, direction? Yeah, I think we're headed that way. I, I don't know when or, or, or how necessarily, but I think we're headed that way. I think that the, the, the public and the Congress, I, I think they're yearning to see that again. Uh, and I think the more, you know, it, it's, you know, the public's really funny. We're now so social and entertainment driven and TV and movies and social media and all. And the more you see on these, the more Star Wars movies you see, the more entertainment that you see that talks about this. You know, that was driving things back in the 60s and 70s. I think it keeps people's interest up. They see those things now and they're not seem to be as far fetched as they were when Star Wars first came out yeah. in the 1970s. And so I, I think that I think Ted's right. I, I agree with him, and uh, I, I hope that he and I both live to see it. Me too. <laughs> All of us. Um, I'm going to come back to where we started. Uh, you said you were an astronaut wannabe. You still want to go? Absolutely. I tell these <laughs> folks up here, every time I meet with somebody from NASA, I just say, well, look, you know, I, I, I said this when I was a U.S. attorney, and NASA was one of my clients. That, you know, as a lawyer, I'm supposed to learn everything about it, and I can't really do that unless I go up in the space shuttle. Um, <laughs> I, I've told folks now, every time I meet with the NASA folks, I said, I, I assume you're saving me a seat. You know, and, and we can go. I mean, you know, John Glenn went up. My colleague Bill Nelson went up uh, at one point. There's no reason why Doug Jones can't go up. <laughs> I just got one suggestion or request yeah. for you. Because if you go, I think you ought to have a friendly reporter along with you. Oh, it's so. got to be documented for sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same if you were just to go up without a, a, a you know, somebody that, that does a podcast, for instance. You know, we could, <laughs> that could do one from space. You so. catch my drift. Absolutely. I, it's, it's pretty easy to catch, Matt. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. My pleasure. Thank you. Senator Doug Jones of Alabama talking with me at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville. I told you we'd get back to Alex McCool. The more than hour and a half I would spend with Alex is one of the most memorable times I've had with any guest of Planetary Radio in 16 years. What you're about to hear is less than 20% of the walking oral history session I had with this true pioneer and hero of human space exploration. He started not long after World War II, even before he met and went to work for Werner von Braun, this was long before the creation of NASA, when the U.S. Army was developing missiles based on the V-2 technology von Braun had developed for Nazi Germany. Now, Alex spends many days at the Space and Rocket Center, turning the Apollo program and more into living history for visitors young and old. 
You can hear my entire conversation with Alex through a link on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. We only have time now for a few minutes of highlights. I won't interrupt what I hope you'll agree is a real treat. So we've just sat down on a bench with Alex McCool, who you just told me you worked on both the F-1, the engines that we are sitting under, and the solid rocket boosters. A little firecracker sitting behind you here was called a Redstone. You can, we're going to talk more about rocketry, and I'm going to give you a Rocketry 101. Okay, that's what I worked in, propulsion. Propulsion, okay. I don't know anything about avionics, guidance systems. I can't even I bet you know a little. No, not much. I'll tell you the truth. So, but what I'm going to do is first give you a little history, a little background. I don't know how much this is, and if I'm wasting your time, okay, you do like this. I'll let you know. Go ahead. I want to hear some stories. I'm going to first give you a little history, then I'm going to give you Rocketry 101. Okay, people say it's rocket science. It ain't rocket science. 99% of it is engineering. Nuts and bolts, pumps, valves, lines, you name it. You make my engineer friends happy. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's what I studied, engineering. So now we're looking in the F-1. This is the F-1 without the skirt that comes down to the turbine exhaust manifold. That's the turbine exhaust manifold. And I'll show you where it comes out up there. Because it's got a gas generator. Now, both these pumps are mounted on the same shaft as the turbine. So it's all turning the same speed. Mm-hmm. You got me there? Yeah. It was simpler to do that. And what we're looking at is up inside. Look inside here. Matt, see that? That's the injector, what you're looking at. See all the holes? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of holes. Yep. See them? Now, the baffle's in there. Now, what happens, you set up high-frequency vibration coming back to you, and it destroys itself in millisecond. and I'm going to show you that in the movie. In the 1960s, we were having this problem, blowing them up. Nobody got hurt, but it brought us to our knees. At that time, I set up an ad hoc team. Now, this is the 1960s. We're still using slide rule. No yeah, you, high couldn't, you couldn't model this on a computer. No, no, that's right. See, we didn't even have computers then. We used slide rule. But to this day, we didn't understand it. So they came up with this configuration. But we've been taking different ones and blowing engines up, blowing engines up. It just blood couldn't get it. Spent over forty million dollars in the 1960s. <laughs> okay, you with me on that? You bet. All right. So they came up with this configuration. Can you see those baffles? Look at those baffles. Yeah. Baffles are just on the face of the injector, and they got holes in them to keep cool with kerosene. Now, the chamber pressure, this is 1,000 PSI, still 5,000 degrees temperature, same principle, same thing, cooling the nozzle. See that manifold there? Yeah. You go back up to cool it. This right here is a turbine exhaust. I'll mm. show you where it comes in here. With cool the skirt. See the skirt right here? Look down here, Matthew. See? This skirt. Yeah. It's just gas cool. We don't we don't refly the engines or anything. We don't worry about it. Not like shuttle. So... We put the, put that thing on test stand, single test stand. Put an insulated bomb in there. A lot of high frequency vibration measurement, accelerometers, temperature, you name it. High speed cameras. Tested that thing. Set the bomb up. Stable. Pressure's all stable. Everything looked good. Said let's fly it. Nobody to this day has shown me an analysis. That tells it what happened. Only thing I can figure out, it attenuates or dampens if you set up some kind of combustion process someplace it starts going this way the vibration these kind of 
attenuates or dampens it. See, I don't know that. It's just my thinking. But it sounds like almost like waves interfering with each other, that's canceling right. each that's other right. out. That's what it's doing with these mm. baffles. So yeah. that's what we flew. This thing brought us to our knees, and I'm telling you, we were, we were hurting back then. Congress looking over our shoulder, cheering us up. That's the worst problem we had. We're getting ready to watch steady firing of all five engines, 1965. First time. You were there. Report that all systems are go here at Marshall Space Flight Center. I'm standing on the roof of the blockhouse, some 250 yards from the test stand. Beneath me, engineers are in the final countdown phase for the first static test of all five first stage engines on the Saturn V, the rocket that will someday carry astronauts to the moon. This facility here in Huntsville has been the nerve center of the race to test the rockets. Werner von Braun and his team, along with engineers from Rocketdyne, have been designing and testing the F-1 engine for years, trying to solve the problems caused by scaling up to such a huge and powerful engine. Violent vibrations caused by the igniting fuel ripped apart the engine, setting the Military. But now, in order to meet President Kennedy's deadline, it has been decided to test all five together, two months ahead of schedule. A failure during this test could end our hopes of getting to the moon by the end of this decade. Attention, Attention all personnel. personnel. Attention, Attention all personnel. personnel. Clear the Clear test stand area. area. Clear the test stand area. Looks like the test conductor, Robert Sadler, has checked with his guys on their console to confirm all systems are go. Automatic countdown sequence has started. T minus seven, six, five, four, three. Two, one, ignition. Test stands about 10 miles from where you're standing, okay? Second loudest noise on the planet. <laughs> Nuclear explosion be louder. Yeah. We broke a lot of windows around here, and we learned when the clouds are low, the sound would go up and come back down. Certain days we didn't test. We had low clouds. But that I wanted you to see that. 53 years ago, were you there? Yeah, yeah. Always. Yeah. Right, that's Apollo 16 command module. It's been to the moon. The real thing. Apollo yeah. 1 was sitting on a pad. Apollo 1, on the first rocket I showed you, Apollo on Saturn 1B, one Saturn 5, okay? They have a fire. Now, the way they get they get them in there, and they fasten from the outside. It was 1967. Anyway, they had pure oxygen, 16 PSI, shortage workmanship, just like Apollo 13. You said you'd bring up workmanship again. And I know they were walking on cables, right, yeah, and yeah, wearing away yeah. insulation. That's right, that's right. So anyway, we lost the crew yeah. on Apollo 1. Well, of course, I just got through reading the book by Harrison Storms. It's his biography. Very interesting if you get a copy to read. It was written in 1991. Storms was a king guy of, of Space Division or North American Aviation. Well, he took a beating on that when we lost the crew three. Dr. Floyd Thompson was the director of Langley Research Center for the investigation. Of course, Congress got into it, second guessing and all this other stuff. So Apollo 1 was a criti critical point 
at that time, 1967, when that happened. You, you didn't work on the command module, of course. You were working no, at the no. other end of the rocket. Yeah. Well, but, I, but, but it must have been awful to hear about this well, and, to, to, and to know it was... What was even worse, this second stage we called the S2T for test, okay? Like what you saw a test video, which they were trying to get out the factory to Mississippi test facility. <clears throat> I was in Downey, staying there in the Apollo Motel, by the way, working the plant. Okay, can you see this? That's the actual piece, comes up. That's the skin outside, and this is part of the structure. It's called the wire ring. Now, try to visualize that thing's 33 feet in diameter. See that dome? Mm-hmm. Okay, big dome. The guys are going in there working, okay, doing stuff, instrumentation or whatever else. And we found out they had had pins, condoms, tools, <laughs> file fell down here. And we got just two guys workmanship. We didn't have NASA's at fault, wasn't North America. We didn't have a system. When you go in there, you write down what you take what you're going to leave, when you come back out, like your glasses, you had to have tethers on them. You didn't take no badge in there, just what you needed. Well, we found all that crap on there, see? Workmanship. But NASA hadn't put in place where you're going in doing these things. Now, what they did, they x-rayed this all the way around so the guys, the workers there could see why what's important, not be dropping yeah. crap down inside. So what I'm trying to tell you, workmanship, it's what got us with Apollo 13. It's what got us on one. Now, let me go back in history. We didn't talk about it. Von Braun and Disney, Walt Disney, personal friends. I have some people come here, and they doubt, is it a Disney hoax? And some of them don't want to believe it. I said, look at me in the eye. I said, man, I got my hand on my heart. I knew those guys. Twelve men walked on the moon. Four still alive. That's what I tell them. Because I had a, it's been about three or four weeks now. This one lady said, "Well, you made a believer out of me." This lady, Good. I, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't remember where, where they were from. Not many things upset me more than people who think we didn't do this. To deny that that this country made that accomplishment in the 1960s, it's just so sad. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It don't want to accept it. Well, it's, it's always these naysayers. There's always people who just don't believe, don't believe. And look at the problem we're having today in today's society. Now, having said that, Matt, here's another thing. I've been asked, hey, now, what do you get out of all this? What do you get out of all this? I said, number one is leadership. What I saw here is leadership. He's the one that committed us, and I told you about earlier, to go to the moon. Then he had recommendations from Von Braun, leadership. He was our boss, okay, and his influence with NASA and everything. His leadership being able to do something is no different than uh, Elon Musk. These guys are leaders. Yeah, yeah. They're doing it. They're willing to step out and do it. You were at the center of all of this happening for so long, part of this group that achieved this thing that uh, humans had been dreaming of for so many years. And there just there aren't there aren't that many of you left now. Now a lot of them. Uh, well, my brother, I say, you know, he worked for NASA. He passed away February a year ago. But most of all the German team, all of them, dead. They're all gone. Uh, a lot of the other people, in fact, we lost another one just last week. Jack Connor was involved in all the testing. But most of the old timers, they're gone. But you must be 
enormously proud yeah. to have been a part of all yeah. this. That's why I come here, Matthew. That's why, you know, to meet people. You know, I've met people from all over the world. I'm I guess I better go, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I got to, I want to thank you. Okay. Not just for doing this, and I'm going to make a recording of this and send it here to the center. Okay. Because good. basically this is, you know, what we call oral history. But I mostly want to thank you yeah, for, because I, I was a kid yeah. in 1969, and I was so thrilled, and I, I you, know, you know. You know what it is for me why I do it? It gives me longevity. I remember dates and a lot of this stuff. No, seriously. Yeah. I went to the gym this morning. I go to the gym. I went That's to the gym right. four days this week. Alex McCool, rocket engineer extraordinaire, sharing his and our history at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, the uh, sponsor, the producer of this program. He is standing by to tell us about the night sky, as he has uh, every week for, we're coming up on the 16th anniversary. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Sweet 16. But you knew and, that. <laughs> and never been... Um... Kissed. Yeah, you can say it. It's okay. <laughs> Planetary Radio Sweet 16 party. <laughs> I like it. So in the sky, we got those planets. And this week, you can look for uh, super bright Venus low in the west after sunset. And it's hanging out uh, in the next week or two near the bluish star Spica in the constellation Virgo. So it'll make a nice pairing. Spica's a bright star, but it's still almost 100 times dimmer than Venus. But it still should be quite quite apparent. So check out Venus and Spica in the west in the early evening and then move across to the southwest. You'll see bright Jupiter and then further to the south and east, uh, yellow Saturn, and then all the way farther over in the southeast. Still really bright Mars looking all reddish and stuff. Check it out. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1979 that Pioneer 11 became the first spacecraft to fly by Saturn. The Voyagers 1 and 2 get well-deserved attention, but we don't want to ignore uh, Pioneers 10 and 11 because, after all, they were there first. Exactly. They were, how you say, pioneers. Pioneers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> pioneers, man. And now we move on to random space fact. So I'm going to return us to the variable star Algol. And we talked about some of its fun nicknames, including Demon Star, in a trivia contest a few weeks ago. It's it's interesting and weird. And if you're looking for a more observational challenge, uh, you can check out its dimming. It's not that hard to see. But what's interesting is it dims by a factor of three in brightness about every three days. It dims for a period of about hmm. 10 hours. And uh, dims because it's what's it's an eclipsing binary, two stars orbiting around each other. It's lined up such that, that one goes in front of the other. And when the dimmer one goes in front of the brighter one, then it drops in brightness. So uh, if you want a challenge, check out Algol. Again, not hard to see, but you need to watch it multiple days or at least the right timing to check out this dimming. It's in the constellation Perseus, uh, which is between Cassiopeia and uh, the bright star Capella. That's excellent. Thank you. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. We were talking about the Parker Solar Probe, and I asked you how many Venus flybys are planned for the Parker Solar Probe to adjust its orbit so it gets closer to the sun. How'd we do, Matt? 
I'm going to start with Carolyn Ozimek or Ozimek's uh, response. She's in Florida. Just because I, I, I love her enthusiasm. There will be seven. Read it. Seven. Yes, I repeat. Seven <laughs> wonderful, glorious, data-accumulating, orbit-altering, mind-bogglingly hot, sensational, fabulous flybys of <laughs> Venus by the Parker Solar Probe. <laughs> that is enthusiasm. It really is. Thank you, Carolyn. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say you didn't win <laughs> after that lovely answer. No, it was Paul Lowell in Apex, North Carolina, a first-time winner, who also came up with seven flybys and adds, keep up the great work, guys, uh, seven flybys to uh, get uh, Parker Solar Probe into uh, the right orbit to do that crazy stuff it's going to do with the sun. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, Remember, kids, it's hard to get to the sun. Paul, uh, you're going to get a Planetary Radio t-shirt, a 200-point itelescope.net account. And we did have a, a, one more of those download codes for Distant Suns VR, Distant Suns Virtual Reality, which is uh, available for iOS devices, uh, you iPhone, iPad types out there. And it's this very cool astronomy or... Observe, not observatory, but uh, what's a planetarium software, basically, you know, the kind you can hold up and it tells you what you're looking at. But they've added this virtual reality mode. I, sh I say they, it's really he, since it's one guy who's been uh, developing and evolving uh, distant suns for many, many years. So congratulations, Paul. Jeremy Engman in Mount Juliet, I believe in Tennessee, he uh, mentions that by the end the Parker Solar Probe will be going 430,000 miles per hour. So I should have done the conversion. What is that? 600, 650 kilometers per hour? That's so fast. <laughs> It'll be the fastest space probe ever, at least uh, relative to the sun. Amazing. Mark Little, we hear from him all the time in uh, Londonderry County, Northern Ireland. He says, is there anything more sci-fi in the development of the Parker Solar Probe than NASA growing sapphire crystal tubes to suspend wiring made from niobium or niobium to cope with the heat? Just wow. I actually use that on my back porch. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> and the sapphire looks so pretty, too. It's so pretty. It. Uh, Phil Naranjo, Phil Naranjo in Seattle, Washington, he said, I bet PSP's magnetometers will make some amazing recordings of the solar magnetosphere, solar winds, atmosphere plasma, right? Would love to hear more about NASA's plans to help us hear the sun, which I thought was very interesting. I bet. He's right about this. I bet there will be some cosmic uh, music coming out of uh, out of that magnetometer. Uh, what do you think? Does that sound likely? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's not sound per se, but they can convert and do convert it into sound as another way to appreciate the data. And uh, yeah, they have all sorts of fields and particles and fields instruments that they'll be able to do that with if they so choose. Finally, this from Richard Nielsen in Brunswick East. That's a, a suburb of uh, Melbourne, Australia. I love this. It'll be nice to give Venus back that kinetic energy that we borrowed for Cassini Huygens. <laughs> that's the main reason they're flying the mission. It's only fair. <laughs> it really is. Okay, we're ready to move on. This one, I think we'll have a clear answer, but you know, it's, it's a little... Hard to see. What is the closest black hole? 
that we know of. Let me throw that in. <laughs> that we're pretty sure is there. <laughs> you mean not the one that's uh, coming our way and is uh, roughly at the uh, orbit of Pluto right now? <laughs> not that one. That one does not count. We're not supposed to talk about that one, are we? I forgot. <laughs> you might cause panic. He's just kidding, folks. How do they enter? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 5th, that's Wednesday, September 5th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. And uh, how about a Planetary Radio t-shirt, which you can check out at chopshopstore.com, where the Planetary Society uh, store is, and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account for that uh, worldwide network of telescopes. I, I heard been, I heard from two listeners this week who uh, have been trying it out and have gotten some really cool images that they've shared uh, from iTelescope. You can, too, if you win the contest. Of course, you can always buy an account on iTelescope. It's nonprofit. Okay, I'm done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about how much you like Saturn's rings and all the other rings in your life. Thank you, and good night. One ring to rule them all. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist for the Planetary Society, among other things, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Join me next week at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its rocket-loving members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro. Astro.